Welcome to the Enoch Pratt Poetry Contest Reading, co-sponsored by the Little Patuxent Review. My name is Stephen Leva. I am the editor of the Little Patuxent Review, and I am so glad to see all of you out here on a wonderful Saturday, sunny, um, at a time when uh, poetry and literature could not be more needed in our city. I'm so glad that we began with uh, some poems uh, from people in Baltimore to help us engage and enter into this uh, experience that is City Lit. Uh, this is our third time partnering with the Enoch Pratt Free Library um, to host a poetry reading, that f uh, a poetry contest that focuses on writers in the Baltimore um, uh, metro region. Um, so you're going to hear from our contest finalist and our contest winner today, along with um, some of the featured editors of Little Patuxent Review. Um, so you can get a, a kind of a dialogue, um, a kind of conversation that exists between the Little Patuxent Review and the people who are our contributors. So welcome. We're so glad to have you. I wanted to begin, before we uh, uh, get into our, our, our readers, with a poem that won the Enoch Pratt Free Contest the first time that Little Patuxent uh, partnered with the Pratt Library. And it's a uh, poem by Joseph Ross, and I think it's timely for things that are going on in Baltimore. And it's called, If Mamie Till Was the Mother of God. If Mamie Till was the mother of God, one of the Ten Commandments would forbid whistling. No one would wear cotton clothing. Every cotton field would be burned in praise of 14-year-old boys and their teeth. If Mamie Till was the mother of God, every river would be still, so nothing thrown in could travel downstream. Barbed wire could only be worn as a necklace by senators. If Mamie Till was the mother of God, every coffin lid would be glass, so even God could see how baptisms are done in Mississippi. It is my great pleasure to introduce Inga Schmidt, the winner of this year's Pratt Poetry Contest. Inga is a poet and fiction writer living in Baltimore. Her work has appeared in Off the Coast, Puerto, Puerto del Sol, and Best Indie Lit of New England. And in 2013, she received the Association of Writers and Writers Programs Intro Journals Project Award. Please join me in welcoming Inga Schmidt. Thank you. Um, I have about six poems to read. They are mostly pretty short. Um, I thought I would start with Soul, um, the poem that I submitted to the contest. This is Soul. Soul, a flatfish, small fins, small eyes, small mouth. It looks like a tongue. Also, a shoe's solid base or the undersurface of a foot, a calloused pillar where the weight of a person is carried, where the 148 pounds of blood and bone and brain and too much thought and fear rest. An adjective, having no companion, solitary. 
a card game I can win in two minutes and seven seconds. From the French sol, meaning only, as in being the only one, as in am I the only one? Soul, having no sharer, sharing with no one. Use it in a sentence. I make a soul cup of coffee, sit at the window, and wait. The next poem I have is called St. Petersburg. To forget St. Petersburg is easy. I've never been there. I've never walked along the frozen Neva River at sunset, pointing a mittened hand at a spire slipping into the purple sky like a needle through wool. How can I remember sipping warm vodka in Palace Square, whispering Najdarovia with numb lips? if I've never seen your shape against the Alexander Column. I've never worn a thick fur hat, the kind that looks like an animal wrapped itself around a human skull and settled in for winter sleeping. I confess I looked up the name, Ushenka, but I can forget that too, the melody of that word. And the color of borscht, dark pink, a passionate color, it would have stained your mouth. My memory is poor. I've already forgotten that day at the restaurant, the August heat, my face burning with hope as you wiped your forehead with a napkin and made a Russian promise, someday. Um, the next poem was my attempt to um, experiment with form, which usually I write um, just free form, but this is a guzzle, which is traditionally an Arabic form of, uh, about love and loss, and it's written in couplets that end with like the same word or phrase. Um, and in the last couplet, it usually includes the signature of the poet, so basically the inclusion of their name or a proper name of someone. Um, and this guzzle I wrote for my father, and it's called Guzzle for My Father. My Catholic friend said priests can act as God. They are fathers, but they bear no children. They are more like spirit fathers. My father does not believe in God. He told me this in his garden while we were weeding the rows of squash that were planted by my father. My great-grandfather drank too much. My father's father worked too much. These sins were not passed down to my father. In French, father is pear, pronounced like the fruit of the tree that became diseased and was cut down by my father. My mother was diseased once. I feared she might be cut down, but he made tea while she slept in the bed she shared with my father. Our family name will die with me because I am a woman. I asked him if he wished for sons. Never, said my father. Schmidt means blacksmith. Inga hero's daughter. Our family is forged together by a holy, earthly man I call my father. This next poem I wrote after studying abroad in Rwanda, which is about three years ago. Um, and I wrote this poem about feeling that kind of excitement and like wonder, um, but also kind of incredible discomfort and strangeness that you feel while you're living in a place that is just entirely different from your home. And it is called Kinyarwanda Lesson, based in Chigali, Rwanda. The walk to school from my house in Yamirambo 
is all downhill. You have to step sure to keep from tumbling. I pass a chicken tasting a pebble and tell it good morning, mwaramutse, saying the mwa with a kiss like I was taught to do. No one in my class can make it sound just right, but my teacher says I am getting there, buhoro, buhoro, slow by slow. When I pass my first neighbor, a yellow plastic bucket of water trembling on her shaved head, my eyes find her eyes, and I say the greeting, but it leaves my mouth without the necessary kiss. She nods but whispers, Mzungu, Mzungu, when I turn. It means white man, stranger, aimless wanderer, from a time when sailors, more green than white, stumbled into East Africa and walked without purpose in the heat. As I pass the women selling oranges with green peels in baskets by the road, their faces filled with expectation, I study the way my feet thud against the dirt, unsettling the dust onto my toes, and the crumbling shop with the words La Boucherie painted on its side in dripping red. It looks like blood. If I can't say good morning with a kiss, I'll stay silent until the day my lips press together perfectly and the morning is truly good, I tell myself as I trip down the mountain with no aim to where I land. This next poem I wrote, um, I am a graduate of Goucher College, and Goucher has this really great program um, where students can apply for something called the Kratz uh, Fellowship Grant, and it lets them um, come up with some kind of project that they can do and then submit a writing portfolio afterwards. And the project I decided to do was um, go to 10 national parks. And really, it was just an excuse because I really wanted to go to a lot of national parks. Um, <laughs> and so I went to 10 national parks um, the summer after I graduated, and I wrote a portfolio of poems about them. Um, and this national parks poem is about Valley Forge in Pennsylvania, which um, was the site where the Continental Army camped for the uh, winter during the Revolutionary War. And I think they lost about um, 2,500 soldiers to the weather and malnutrition and disease. Um, and I learned when I was there that they were struggling with a major um, deer, like the deer population getting out of control. Um, and the way that they had decided to solve this problem was to bring in hunters a few times secretly in the middle of the night um, to control the population and bringing them in, in the middle of the night so that um, they could avoid protesters. Um, so this poem is kind of about that project of controlling the deer population against the backdrop of the history of the park, and it's called Culling. Wet snow softens the sound of a gun. Somewhere in Valley Forge, a doe buckles, and her blood begins to seep into the slush. The hunters find and gather her, a victim of her species' surge and hunger. They hope her death will lush the land again, that lives of other creatures will improve. It is midnight, and the men move gently over ground that knows the feel of death so well. Her kind has thrived because of men, yet now their kind has ended her. Please let the earth be greener with her gone. Even when life is low, on this land there is meaning in a body. And the last poem I have is about Baltimore. 
And it's untitled right now because I'm actually not sure if it's totally finished, um, but I wanted to read it every, anyway, um, considering everything that's happened this weekend is still happening and um, will hopefully continue to happen. It's Baltimore in early spring, and the birds harmonize with a siren song, not the mythical kind. No mermaids in this city. The neighbor's cat jumps on my porch and paws at my foot for food. Her name is Midnight, a name I hate because it took no thought to name her. Black cats are always called something to do with the dark. It's warm, but the tree next door is leafless and slow to catch on to the trend. Maybe it's good to be cautious, prepared for a trick. Can we trust a changing season? Springtime births a crocus and a cockroach. Midnight stalks one scuttling now between splintered slats of wood, hoping to feed her hungry skinny belly. The wailing of the cop car passes, and I think maybe there is a mythos in this city filled with sailors forced to follow a melody that dashes them against a pavement cracked and broken by both spring and winter and every season of the earth. Thank you. If you would like to read um, Inga's work, her contest-winning poem, you can read it in two places. One is in the giant banner outside with her face on it. I'm going to embarrass her a little bit, but you can see it there as you're walking the streets of Baltimore. But also, she will be published in the Little Patuxent Review in our summer issue, so um, please look for it in those two places. It's my great pleasure to introduce Anne Bracken. Anne Bracken's poetry, essays, and interviews have appeared in anthologies and journals, including the Little Patuxent Review, New Verse News, Scribble, Reckless Writing Anthology, Emerging Poets of the 21st Century, and Women Write Resistance, Poets Resist Gender Violence. Her memoir in verse, The Altar of Innocence, is published already here in 2015 by New Academia Publishing of Washington, D.C. You can pick it up at the Little Patuxent Review table. Please welcome Anne Bracken. I'd like to thank the Pratt and City Lit for this wonderful event today. Uh, it really is a day of celebration that we're all coming together to celebrate the arts and to uh, talk about the power of the arts, to open our hearts to whatever's happening in the world. And also thank you to Stephen and all the good folks at LPR. And congratulations, Inga. So I am going to be reading from my memoir in verse, The Altar of Innocence, but first I'd like to read a poem that I actually wrote about a student that I had in Richmond, Virginia, 40 years ago. I've been a teacher for my whole career, first starting as a speech pathologist in the public schools and then working most of my career as a special education literacy and English teacher, and now I teach writing to college students at the University of Maryland. And my next collection of poems is going to feature stories about many of the children that I've known and the adult students that I've known over the years, because I really feel like their faces get lost um, in all the debates that we have about education. And I think that we need to remember who's in our classrooms when we talk about students 
students achieving or not achieving. And uh, I think this poem is particularly relevant, especially since this week I read that the city is sending out notices to 25,000 people that have overdue water bills that their water is in danger of being cut off. This is for Maxine. Maxine the Hugger. When Maxine enters the speech room, she throws her arms around my neck, pulls my face close to her cheek. Her party dress is dotted with food stains, the gray-white collar frayed and limp. Maxine smells like musty sheets draped over furniture in an abandoned house. Blonde bangs graze the tops of her brows, and thick lashes frame hopeful eyes. As if to answer the one question I would never ask, Maxine tells me, We don't have no water in my house. She reads the worry on my face. But Mama says not to fret, because my Uncle Todd, he lives in the house one house over, He's going to run a hose down to our place. And um, my memoir deals with the journey of two women struggling with depression, my mother's journey and my own journey. My mother's journey did not end so happily, um, and she unfortunately used alcohol to self-medicate her depression along with medication. And having that as my model, I was determined of two things, that I would never be like my mother, which I was, and that when I became seriously depressed, I would get well, no matter what it took, and I did. So this is a poem conjecturing what my mother may have felt when she was raising children. It's called Helen Lives the Queen for a Day Life. There is no pattern for the life she's living, she cannot render sense of the daily chores, the diapers and meals, homework and toddlers. There's no pasture behind her house like the golden field in the Wyeth painting. Her dreams play in the shadows like rogue relatives who squander security for safety. Sometimes she feels degrees away from sanity like when she imagines her dusty art portfolios whimpering in the basement, buried, perhaps, under the twigs of her youthful dreams. She plays at being happy as she peels another diaper off her infant son and cajoles vegetables into her daughter's stubborn mouths. She feels her spirit wither, even as her husband cheers the news of another pregnancy, and measures her out an ounce of gin for her nightly martini. And this is a poem called Diagnosis, about the beginning of my own depression, when a doctor used a word with me that I had no idea what it meant, and the word was affect, which um, most of you probably know it means feelings, your feelings, and I had no idea what he was talking about. So this is an epigraph to this doctor in the poem Diagnosis. There's something stuck in your affect, and when it lifts, you'll be fine. 
It's that long slide from hopeful to bereft as the gaudy landscape of my life falters in hallways. Doctors offer their gifts, Prozac, Zoloft, Paxil, Buspar, six weeks of one and six weeks of another until the gods of serotonin and dopamine push me back into the light. When my spirit soars with easy smiles and ready laughs, the doctors shake their heads and murmur, Manic, bipolar too. I lose my vocabulary. I gain 50 pounds. I undress alone in the dark. New drugs tamp me down to some arbitrary normal. As life spreads itself before me, daily postcards of people and plans. I feel nothing except the smooth surface of the picture, unable to enter its world. And this last poem is about um, when I finally got out of depression and I realized that um, I was in a very bad marriage and I needed to go. And it took a lot to get that message through to me. And this poem was originally published in Scribble, which is a local Baltimore literary magazine. It's called The Portal. Sometimes revelation comes as an angry messenger in the middle of a thunderstorm, a fist hammering on your door. Rivers of rain wash his face. The terror of loss flashes in his eyes. His hands grasp yours and beg for rescue. Sometimes, revelation comes like a slovenly house guest, sleeping in the middle of your living room, eating your energy with petty demands. Fluff my pillows, cook my supper, refusing to leave until he evicts you from your stupor. Before I know his name, he kicks a box across the room, pounds on the wall, and then rages out of the house. Stunned by his explosion, I awaken to his presence. Sometimes, revelation comes in a whisper, as tender as your first seduction. This time, you see the thunderstorm lurking behind the smile. Translate the promises into threats. Sense an opening. You slip into the portal that opens behind him and claim your new life. Thank you. I don't know how many recovering Catholics we have in the room, but there is a wonderful, wonderful poem in Anne's book called Adultery, about a child learning about the meaning of the word adultery. It will knock your socks off and have you rolling on the floor laughing. Um, You can only imagine, right? Uh, So it is my uh, pleasure also to uh, introduce one of our finalists, uh, Jim Carroll. Jim Carroll is a retired landscaper currently living in Easton, Maryland. Jim enjoys writing about nature and natural events. 
married for almost 43 years, almost deserves a hand clap, right? 43 years. He is the proud father of one daughter. Please welcome Jim Carroll. I'd like to uh, congratulate Inga on her fine poem and thank everybody for coming. Uh, when I left Easton this morning, I asked my wife, was there a folder I could put my poems in to carry over? And she took some papers out, and this is what she got, gave me. <laughs> it was her cookie recipe. So I hope that there's at least one poem in here as good as her cookie recipes. The poem that was part of the contest is called Nick's Diner. It's an actual diner that's located in Wheaton, Maryland, at the corner of Veers Mill and University. And it's been run by a Greek family for many years. His wife works there, and his two daughters work there. And it's an institution. There's very little parking, known for its breakfasts, and for Nick, who basically cooks with his back turned to the counter and never says hello, goodbye, or anything to anybody. But Nick Steiner, Wheaton, Maryland. He is thin like his crisp bacon. The ash that hangs over the eggs from his cigarette is the color of pepper. He's done this for a long time. Cracks an egg with one hand like snapping fingers. You won't get much conversation here. His wife arranges the orders before him like composed music. His last daughter is at the register, the black yolks of her beautiful Greek eyes. I'm thinking of my odds with her while his omelets flip heads or tails. One of my friends is a Harley Davidson freak, and I understand in order to get a ride on Harley-Davidson, you should start slow, sort of go around the block if you haven't ridden for a while, then maybe a mile or two. Well, he opened his garage door and drove straight to Ocean City and back from Washington, D.C., spent about 10 hours on the bike and ended up with some kind of kidney problem. So anyway, this is called Harley. It'll give you a little insight about John. Harley for John. The doctors blamed it on your Harley, your kidneys nearly shutting down. Into the hospital for repairs. In your arm, the intravenous with its slow, slow dripping. The nurses were never fast enough for you, and your neighbor in the next bed was up even and too close. Discharge, they took you down in a quiet wheelchair, and you disobeyed the doctor straight away on your Harley again, taking up your too big piece of road. Uh, working outdoors in landscaping business, I think the month I disliked working in the most was March because it would be hot one day, cold the next, wind blowing, not blowing. You felt like mulch, tools, everything, one in one ear and out the other, come home with a headache. 
So I always thought that March was sort of like a person that didn't know whether he wanted to get up and face the day or not. So this poem is called March. Half in, half out of bed, partly cloudy sky with work to do, trees to leaf, grass to green, the tough bud of the daffodil to unfold, friends to awaken, bear and snake, births, deer and bird. Still there are reminders of fall before sleep, leaves wet and brown, red berry cling, the rattle of windows looking out at the garden, my own chores hard on sleep and ease, mind and yours, sore-muscled wind. My wife's here today. This month we'll be married 43 years. Been through quite the thises and thats, but we're still together. We had a wonderful daughter, and back in 1974, we went across country and back. Stopped at UCLA, didn't like it, came back. Had a 65 Mustang, got 25 cents a gallon gasoline in a place called Gila Bend, Arizona. And I took a picture of my wife there. This is my favorite. She was young, blonde, and she had a coat wrapped around her shoulders. And she was leaning against the post, which was part of an old corral, I think. And so I took the picture. And then later, I read a poem about the picture. Gila Bend, Arizona. It was taken in Gila Bend, Arizona. The sky is blue as your jeans and thin clouds like the end of a brushstroke. Behind you are mountains full of shadows and brush that survives without rain. You lean against the post like a friend, what's left of an old corral. Both sides of your hair meet at your breast. The sunglasses protect from a sun that colors clear glass. We are between homes. You do not smile or frown but wait in the desert like your pose for something from me to happen. <laughs> A very influential person in my life was my grandfather who lived in near Shinkatig. And he loved roses and all things garden. If I had a green thumb, it was from him. And... He used to play little tricks on me now and then. One of the games he played involved me, the stars, and lightning bugs. And it was called, this poem is called Lightning Bug. My grandfather would catch one in his palm, then ask me as a child, Do you want to touch a star? Then he'd open his hand to the pulsing light that I touched, and it up and flew away into the deepest dark. You can't keep a star forever, is what he'd say, then marched me off to bed. What a trick he played on me, and what star in its cold heaven wouldn't want to play along. Okay. I'm going to read a poem that's called Hog Killing had the opportunity to know the farmer and lots of times they provided their own meat and so forth and I the farmer's name was Mr. Abragast 
And this is a poem called Hog Killing About the Day They Killed Their Hogs. Hog Killing. This is no quiet killing on the Abrogast farm. The weather is cold and the hogs are fat. In the dead corn fields, the butchers round them up for the ride in a truck to the barnyard. There they get a bullet in the brain, a throat cut like a smile, a rope around one leg, and are hoisted and turned into the knife that guts quick and clean. Many eyes see this. Children skip school for this day. A mother measures for the freezer. The hog is lowered brown and bloody into a water barrel, red as wine. The hair is scraped off. The body turns in the water. The snout sticks up like a stump. The feet rise out of the water. The meat is salted down. Water buckets wash away the blood. Abrogast sharpens his knives on each other, crossed in his hands like crossbones. I think I'll read just one more. This is wrote read one for my wife. This is for my daughter. It's just only five lines long. It's called Fifteen. I think uh, it was her first attempt at makeup, but nowadays they start with makeup a little earlier, I think. Fifteen. For the first time I see eye shadow under your black brows. Did you think I wouldn't notice? Blue umbrellas opened indoors. Thank you. Our other finalist for the Enoch Pratt Poetry Contest is Misha White. Misha was born in York, Pennsylvania in 1966 and grew up in Rockville, Maryland, raised by her paternal grandparents. She studied writing at Washington College in Chestertown, Maryland, graduating with a BA in English Literature in 1988. Misha currently lives in Mount Airy, Maryland, with her wife and three cats. Please welcome Misha. Thank you. It's an honor to be here among such fine company and in front of the two people I love most in the world and in Baltimore today. Um, the poem that I entered in the contest is called Rest Stop. Um, it was actually just something I saw on a walk around my house, and it's about birds. An unseen gate swings wide, spilling snow geese from the sky. Hundreds more dot the pond, drifting straight-necked in the water, prim as gloves, calling here, guess here, all accounted for, whooping in a foreign key. When someone's dog bounds down the path and they startle up, flustered tourists jostling for the, lost, the last train. They hang above me like a paragraph, impossibly beautiful, wings pinked with light, I watch, astonished, as they lift, dip, circle back to their seats, leaving me shaken with joy and regret. And I have one poem I'm still working on, 
um, about Beach Week with my mom as a kid. Um, it's called Mermaids. I called her Aunt Dee Dee, and she called me the kid, as in, can the kid deal with crackers for dinner tonight? She smoked a lot and cussed, had a seal bark of a laugh, and I was sometimes afraid if she snapped her fingers, I'd disappear for real. In the summer, she lived in a clapboard cottage with white metal awnings, TV trays, and shiny tropical fish that chased each other across the wood paneling. They'd both married men who drank harder after the war, who hated the water, the crowds, the smells of the boardwalk. They had better things to do than lie around in the sun while their wives played hands of gin rummy, all bright scarves and lipstick. From the cool cave of the umbrella, I'd watch them transform, shake off their other selves like snapping sand from a blanket. No longer mine, my mother would race Dee Dee into the waves, Diving in tandem, they'd rise, laughing, tossing their arms behind them like mermaids. Thank you so much, Misha. Um, I hope you've gotten a sense of the kinds of dialogues, kinds of conversations that are happening in Little Patuxent Review. And I'm uh, going to just read one poem of my own. Um, to send you back out into the um, open maw out there, um, back out into the streets if you're, going, if you're going home to protest or to be a part of what's going on in the city. But I want to just say thank you again to the Enoch Pratt Library. Thank you to Shailene. You know, thank you to this great city for what it's producing what it's in terms of art and how art might help us heal um, and heal again. Um, I, this week I posted online um, that it matters, it matters just as much what somebody heals from, um, it matters just as much the way in which they heal. And I use that analogy, if you break a leg and you don't set the bone, you walk with a limp for the rest of your life. Um, so hopefully what we're doing today will help us set that bone. Because I know art can do that. This is Mob Town in Midsummer for Baltimore. The fireworks, the firework barges pull anchor. Under a veil of ash and wind, ardor fattens this night with black. People swagger and lack, set aglow, howling down the inner harbor's shoreline. A ratted gown of fog reveals even the moonlight stutters at their passing, their slight slaughter of laughter, while foghorns blare all Baltimore into revelry. But who cares? Ignoring an Indian summer, July began as usual with a few murders in Flan, orders rising to fill the cafe terraces where wonder nearly extinguishes the sun journalist shop talk about future gubernatorial stock characters. No one speaks this tonight, and minds turn listless with crab hammers in the swift crack, vials slid in handshakes, Summer's slack vowels hum along everyone's accent, remembering the seasons half spent. And here, someone is marking a vacant with urine. And there, someone is declaring the last Bohemia. And everywhere, Bethlehem steel is abandoned, and former workers mill in the assembly line of TV dinners. Darkness bleeds from alleys on the backs of rats. And folly 
of light skims the sweat on a policeman's gun, the safety unset. Baywater thronging below condos intones a coda for a black crowd's slow exodus. Evening and morning, the fourth day, midsummer thumbing through the soft linens of wind to lie over a city that shouts back at its own obituaries too soon, too soon. Thank you. You've been a great audience. Thank you. Please visit the Little Patuxent Review table. Please go to the, the other events that are, that are going on here. We have some wonderful readings by people who are associated with LPR. Go to the Poetry and Medicine uh, reading. Uh, you know, go to the Calhindra Harris Poetry Prize reading. Um, and visit our table. If you like what you heard today, you can purchase a copy of Little Patuxent Review. There are some copies on the tables there and some postcards. Thank you again, and thank you for being a part of what's going on in, alt- in art in Baltimore.